If you'll turn with me this morning, please, to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. I'll read the first 12 verses. We began to look at this portion of God's word last week. We'll read it again this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 12 verses. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, for labouring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Gracious Father and God, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might understand even today for each of us in our respective place and sphere what it means to be under the word of God, under the true care of souls, that we might expect and demand what is right for the people of God as the, shepherd, as the sheep of the great shepherd that we might appreciate the benefits of faithful ministry. We ask, O oh God, that you'd guide us in this. Grant that your servant may speak with a proper clarity and humility, and that each one of us may take to heart what is heard. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were here last week, you would have known that one of the great Baptist uh, theologians of the 18th into the 19th century, a man called Andrew Fuller, said that if he wanted an example of a Christian minister that he didn't know of a, a better place in some senses to which he could turn than the second chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians. This is not the last word, but it is a significant word. These were men whose ministry God had made effective. It was not 
vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't without purpose and it wasn't without fruit. The Apostle Paul, together with his working companions, Silas or Silvanus, he's called in the first verse of the first chapter, and Timothy, these men were now under assault from people in Thessalonica who were trying to undermine their ministry and divide the people of God from the men who had brought the word of God to them that they may be saved from their sins and walk in righteousness before him. And Paul understands that one of the ways in which the devil can assault the church of Jesus Christ is to divide the church from its under-shepherds to make a, a disconnect between the messenger and the message. You can't trust him, so you cannot take seriously what he says. And Paul then, together with Silas and Timothy, are facing rumours about their personal and their pastoral integrity. Now, no man today is an apostle in the way that Paul was. Uh, we do not have eyewitness testimonies of the majesty of Jesus Christ any longer. But it's the character of Paul with Silas and Timothy that is helpful for us. Paul, in dealing with the congregation in Thessalonica, appeals to knowledge. The knowledge that God has of him and the knowledge that God's people have of him. He can say that with regard to his standing before God, and with regard to the life that he has lived before the people here in Thessalonica, that they know and that God knows, that God is his witness and that the people have seen who he was and how he lived and served. And we then are considering this matter of ministerial faithfulness. We're doing it for various reasons. We're doing it because it's in our Bible. And therefore it's profitable for us to know what kind of ministry and what kind of minister God has said he has appointed for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. We're doing it because this is the sort of material that, although it may be adapted in a normal church setting, this is the kind of material that I go and preach if I'm at a pastor's conference. And I think there's value in you knowing what I am saying and understanding that I am subject to this word as well and particularly. I think it's important that the Church of Jesus Christ, here and in any other place, has a biblical understanding of what we are to expect, what we are entitled to, in terms, first and foremost, of the character and conduct of the minister's of the gospel and I think that with the honest workmen taking place it's it's good for us to have these things before our minds again not just for the encouragement of the brothers who are with us but also for our understanding and prayer for those whom God appoints and the church recognizes to serve in this way. Paul then understands that in terms of faithful gospel ministry, there are many particular pressures that are brought to bear upon the preacher and teacher of the word of God that threaten his faithfulness, that would undermine his commitment to speak the word of God clearly and openly. 
He tells the church in Thessalonica that they themselves know the kind of suffering that he went through in Philippi. How he had been physically assaulted, how he'd been beaten with rods and put into the prison. How though the Lord had guided him through that environment, first of all dealing with Lydia and her household, then the confrontation with the slave girl, then the prison experience and the opportunity it had given him to, to minister to the Philippian jailer and his household, that on the other side of that, yes, God has blessed them. But the temptation would be in moving on to Thessalonica to say in effect, now I wonder if we can get the same effect, but at lower cost. Can I perhaps, should I perhaps, change the message? The next time I need to confront spiritual wickedness, should I take a step back rather than a step forward? Do I need to, to navigate my way more carefully through some of these dangers and difficulties? The pressure then constantly upon the preacher of the gospel is to lose his edge, to trim his sails, to avoid strife to succumb to the fear of men. And the men who minister today face exactly the same pressures, run the same risks, face, fight the same battles, and need to pursue the same purity that Paul, with Silas and Timothy, was able to say, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. And notice that we can't then make the excuse, well, that was just apostles. Because Silas and Timothy were not apostles in the way that Paul was. But our coming to you. Paul says this is true of those who ministered. So last week we began to look at the pressures that Paul and Silas and Timothy rejected. And we said in an overarching description that the temptation is to a man-centred and so fundamentally self-serving ministry. How does Paul describe that? What was it that Paul resisted? He resisted, first of all, the temptation to deceit, to change his teaching, to avoid true doctrine, to carelessly or deliberately depart from the right way and to lead people astray because the right path was too difficult. Paul said he rejected the pressure of uncleanness, that is, his motives were always pure. And he identifies probably greed and human glory as powerful temptations. If I could get money, if I could get uh, appreciation. You know, sometimes, how you, if only someone would say thank you. I'm not saying that's how pastors think or feel or should speak. But you know what it is like. when someone, If only someone would appreciate me. When something that you've done goes overlooked or neglected. And Paul says that's a temptation. We want people to notice what we've done. We want people to think well of us. It may even be here that Paul says the rumour's been spreading that we were using our position, our influence, our teaching to pursue sexual immorality. And that's one of the things that we often still see today. Paul says that I was not marked by guile. I resisted that temptation. Rather, I was honest and transparent. 
Paul says, in effect, you always knew what I was saying. I never tried to pull the wool over your eyes. I didn't try to dazzle you with an impressive vocabulary. I didn't try to use carnal cleverness of speech that would leave you thinking that you'd been well preached to, but your soul largely untouched. I didn't bait a hook and hope that you would bite it, but I told you what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. And then I resisted the temptation to flattery. I didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. I didn't uh, puff you up with my false and foolish words. I didn't wear a mask in front of you, but I gave you straight talk. I was not then a man pleaser. And I don't know where all of you go to church, and I don't know all the experience that all of you have had but you don't need to look very far for some of you, perhaps even in your own experience, to know that deceit, uncleanness, guile and flattery are the labels that you could put on a lot of so-called preachers and preaching today. It's the so-called prosperity gospeler, the man who promises you health and wealth and a long and happy life if only you follow Jesus. You know the men who typically get health and wealth and a long and happy life out of you following Jesus like that? It's the men who tell you that that's how you should follow Jesus. Oh, and there's a price to pay. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the silent offering. I think I've told you about the silent offering before, haven't I? Yeah, that's the one you do with your credit card. We don't want any coins. We don't want any notes. Uh, I suppose you could say the machine beeps, but you know, we, we want you to give properly. The men who puff themselves up, the men who never deal righteously with your soul, the men who always tell you that everything is fine, the people who will not mention sin and will not deal with sin. Paul says that that kind of ministry leaves behind it a tragic legacy of men whose sin has been uncovered. Men who are marked by underhand dealings, sinful appetites, avoiding any kind of trouble, cultivating their own reputation and feathering their own nest. And Paul can say with judgment day honesty, that was not me. That was not us. And if you are under that kind of influence, if you're listening to that kind of ministry, if you're watching those kind of YouTube videos, if you're reading those kinds of books, then you need to flee the false shepherds. You need to get away from the hirelings who are in it for themselves and have no regard for the sheep of Christ's flock. These then are the pressures that a minister will feel if he is seeking to be faithful. And I would be a fool to stand before you and to say, but it's okay, we're good Reformed Baptists, that doesn't apply to us. I need your prayers as much as I need to be praying for you that we will not succumb and that I will not succumb to these pressures. We need to see these things coming. You are entitled as God's people. I use that language carefully. You should expect and even demand that any man who stands and serves in this place as an under-shepherd of the flock will obviously, evidently, definitely renounce deceit, 
uncleanness, guile, and flattery. And if I or any other man should become such a pastor and preacher, it is the duty of the church to deal with that sin. Otherwise, the poison will come into all your spiritual veins and we will lose everything that is precious. Paul then says, that was not me and by implication, that should not be any true man of God. But it's not all negative because there's a flip side to this. Not only the pressures that are rejected, but the purity that is pursued. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, here's a positive, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. That's the negative, the pressure rejected. But... As we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, pleasing God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ." Then in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. Now we'll come in due course, Lord willing, to the two illustrations that Paul uses of this kind of pastoral faithfulness, this pastoral trust worthiness but what I want to drive at this morning is that we should see and we should pray for and we should expect and we should pursue this kind of purity in the church of Jesus Christ you see in contrast to that man-centered self-serving self-exalting ministry so-called here is a God-centred, spirit-sensitive service and ministry. And Paul emphasises not just that he avoided what was illegitimate, but that he was even willing to suspend what was legitimate for the glory of God and the good of the church. He says, there were things that I might have demanded as an apostle. Paul could have come and said, you need to listen to me because I have been sent from Christ. And that means I'm entitled to certain respect. I'm entitled to certain support. I'm entitled to a certain uh, deference. You can imagine something. Paul says, no, I came with no such demands. I didn't hide my identity. I didn't in any way undermine my pastoral or apostolic here authority. But I was willing to suspend that which I might have expected for the sake of God. Notice how he describes himself together with his companions. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. We were bold in our God. Now, how do we often think of boldness? Because you need to take account of the qualifier here. Paul doesn't say, you know us, we're big men. You know us, nothing scares us. You know us, 
We'll say anything to anyone. I don't think that was the case. I think there are significant indications that Paul himself may have been a man with a particular sensitivity to physical pain. And that's a powerful pressure. Timothy, who often I think is, you know, is, is dismissed perhaps as timid Timothy. But there does seem to be something in his youth and in his disposition that at least on one occasion meant that Paul needed to exhort him to courage. There are very few naturally bold people. This is not their natural courage. This is not somebody full of human bravado. This is not somebody who thinks that they're so big and so special and so important that they can look anybody in the eye and stare them down. We were bold in our God. This is the man who may be sick to his stomach because of what he needs to say. This is the man who may be trembling and sweating under his shirt because he needs to take a stand that may not be popular. This is the man who might pull muscles in his body just holding himself straight and still because he's having to contend with anger, with fury, with rage, with disdain and with scorn. What holds him in his place? What keeps him speaking the truth as it is in Jesus? It's not his natural courage. It's his boldness in our God. This is a man who understands that he is a herald of the Most High. That he is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He does not have the option of backing down. Do you remember Elijah when he came before King Ahab in the Old Testament? Chapter 17 or 18, I think, of 2 Kings. He comes before a man who's got the power over him, humanly speaking, of life and death. He comes to deliver a message from the true Jehovah to a man who worships Baal to say that my God is going to turn off your God's tap. How does Elijah do that? How does he stand before the king? Do you remember how he begins his statement? As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. That's a man who's not bold, full stop, but is bold in his God. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. God is real and he is my God and I am in his presence and because of him I speak. Paul says, verse 6 and verse 9, we didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. And verse 9, you remember our labour and toil, labouring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I was entitled to respect and I was entitled to support. I could have said, you need to listen to me and you need to give your money to me. But, says Paul, in that context, Paul isn't saying that no minister should ever have a salary. That's a different question. What Paul is saying is that in an environment in which I was being accused of being motivated by greed, I gave up my right to the support to which I was entitled in order that no one might be able to accuse me and you'd have no reason to doubt me. Not just that I didn't steal 
But I didn't even take what I was entitled to in order that no one may have any doubts. I made no demands upon you, but rather I gave myself to draining labour and toil on your behalf. Paul is telling God's people in Thessalonica that as ministers of the gospel, he, with Silas and Timothy, actively avoided all appearance of self-seeking and self-serving. Now, there's a danger in a phrase like that, isn't there? They actively avoided all appearance. That's the problem with hypocrites, isn't it? They're going to actively avoid all appearance of self-seeking and self-serving while self-seeking and self-serving. They want to be thought of as generous men. They want to appear to be the good guys while they're actually, under the surface of things, serving only themselves. That's not what Paul is suggesting. What he's emphasising is this, that there was no sham piety. There was no mere show of holiness. That comes back to that whole matter of honesty and transparency and straight talk. Paul's saying, we did not pretend to be anything that we were not. And you know that that's the case because of how we conducted ourselves among you. This is the language then of sincere humility. And again, I think we said last week, we need to get back to the kind of clarity of thought where a man or a woman can say with the Apostle Paul, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ without everybody assuming that that's boastful. Mature Christian men and women should be able to say, insofar as I am following Jesus, you can and should follow me. To say, in effect, come with me and I will show you what it looks like to live for God in this world. And Paul can say, without any pride, without being puffed up, that he had lived in such a way that they knew that he wasn't after anything for himself. What's the great positive declaration here? Listen to it again. After we had suffered, after we'd been spitefully treated, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Then again, verse 4, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak as pleasing God who tests our hearts. And then you remember, brothers, our labours night and day, for labouring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. What then lies at the heart of Paul's ministry? What is it that he, with Silas and Timothy, were committed to? What's the point at which all the pressure is brought to bear? What's the, the, the point at which the battle is being joined? What is it that Paul and Silas and Timothy did despite the pressures? Why did they pursue this kind of purity? It is because they had been entrusted with the good news that had come from heaven that Jesus Christ saves sinners through his death on the cross in the place of the undeserving and the hell-deserving. And my friends, that message is still under assault. It was then and it always will be. 
And the ease then with which that gets trimmed, with which that gets diluted, the the demands and the commands and the offers and the privileges and the invitations of the gospel are so watered down that there's nothing left worth having. A Christ who cannot save, what good is that? A God who cannot bless, what use is he? A hell that doesn't exist, a heaven that everybody gets to, a salvation that costs nothing, a life that requires no holiness. You can be very religious. You can use all the Christian language in the world. But if you do not hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then your soul is damned. Unless you trust in the Son of God who took flesh and blood, who came into this world, who lived and died for the sake of his people, who rose again for our justification, and who calls you from your life of sin to repent and to believe in him, that you may walk then in newness of life, blessed and sustained by the very God of heaven and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. My friends, less than that is not the Christianity of the Bible and it will not save you. It will damn you while you think things are well with you. You cannot afford anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think this is Paul saying, I never preached anything but a Calvary sermon. You see that even from the letter that he writes. Because he says, you know what we've told you. You know what we've told you. What Paul has is Christ and him crucified as the great golden centre of all his ministry, from whom all salvation flows, deliverance from sin and death and hell, and deliverance to a life of true godliness and service. And Paul says, my constant temptation would have been to draw back from that. I wouldn't have got into trouble in Philippi if I hadn't rebuked the young woman who was under the power of darkness, or better, rebuked the the demon who was possessing her. If I hadn't stood up to the wickedness and the cruelty of the men who were making money out of the demonic suffering of that woman. I wouldn't have got into trouble in Philippi if I'd backed off and told them, no, the God that I serve is just like all the other gods. I wouldn't have got into trouble if I'd somehow diminished Jesus Christ. I'd have been fine with the Jews if I hadn't proclaimed him as Messiah. If I hadn't said that he'd risen again from the dead. At any of these points, I might have said, look, I'll just find a way around it. My friends, it's not just preachers, is it? Haven't you learned, be honest, have you not learned how to navigate this world without getting into too much trouble? To hold to enough Christianity to keep your conscience clear. But to back off and to back off and to back off at those points at which the truth is at stake. And a soul is either damned or saved based on the testimony that we bear as God's people. My friends, I can't just do this behind the cover of a pulpit. This is the man that I have to be on the street and with my neighbours and amongst my family, and with my friends. There's a sense in which this kind of purity is required of all of God's people. How much more then 
of those who stand to teach the truth as it is in Jesus. What does Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 17? I have been entrusted with a stewardship. He says, I'm preaching the gospel and I've got nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's something of that Jeremiah-like pressure. The word was in my heart, shut up. It was like a fire in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Paul says, if I do it willingly, I have a reward. God will bless me. But if I do it against my will, I've still been entrusted with a stewardship. Even if I felt that this was not something that I wished to embrace, I'm a responsible man. Why? Because, he says to the Thessalonians again, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We've been given this weighty responsibility. We've been given this precious commodity. We have the words of life. We bring the light of heaven to bear on the darkness of the world. We speak salvation for sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. Paul is saying in effect, how could we betray that trust? How could we betray the God who has given us that responsibility? How could we betray the people before whom and amongst whom that responsibility is to be discharged? My friends, if I don't speak true doctrine, if I don't have pure motives, if I don't labour with honesty and transparency, if you cannot be confident that I will speak the truth to you, then I am jeopardising your souls. Paul says we've been approved. Proved and approved is the sense through trial. We've been tested. Every, every blow that we've suffered, every sneer that we've undergone, every time a spittle's run down our faces, every name we've been called, every slander we have suffered, God is proving us. God has formed us for purpose. Even the work through which, the, the, the experience through which we've passed has been God's way of bringing us to the point where we are able to do, in dependence upon Christ, what we've been called to do. God himself knows our faithfulness. He is trusting us with the gospel. Our duty will then be discharged. We've gone through searching scrutiny. I don't know if you've ever had to searchingly scrutinise something. Suppose I were to say to you, one of the chairs in here is going to collapse under somebody. Uh, you know we've been you know, working towards repairing some of this damage. We took the screws out of one, but we're not sure which one it is. What would you do before you sat down? You would scrutinise the chair. You would tip it over. You would make sure that that chair was going to hold your weight. You would make sure that every screw was in place, every bolt was in place. Suppose you were going to go on some funfair ride. 
And the guy was to say to you, got a bit of a problem with one of the cars on this roller coaster. The, the bars have got a habit of flipping up when you're going through the loop the loop. What would you do? You would searchingly scrutinise. You would make sure that this thing was sound and solid, could take your weight, could keep you safe, was going to be fit for the purpose. And Paul says, we have been scrutinised. God has cast his eye across our souls. And that's the consciousness with which we live and in which we serve. Paul is saying here that not just do the Thessalonians have the evidence before their eyes of the kind of character and the kind of conduct that a faithful minister has, but that God himself had been through their humanity with a fine-toothed comb and had made sure that that which was compromising was taken away and that that which would make them faithful had been brought in. It was their consciousness of God that conditions every word they speak and that gives them every motive to open their mouths. You see, they're free men. They're not serving for the applause of mankind, are they? They're serving for the smile of God. His eye matters. His gaze penetrates. And if they can live before him in such a way as to be able to say, God tests our hearts and God is our witness, they then can say, and you yourselves know, God has seen and you can see the evidence before you. Now, why are they so serving? What is it that should drive me and every other gospel minister? What is it that if you're seeking at some point to be a preacher or a teacher of the word, if you have aspirations for eldership, what is it that should govern you? Well, Paul tells us right at the end of this section. What is it that he's driving at? Why does he serve God? Why does he serve men for God's sake? That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We'll come to this again more fully in due course. But Paul serves the eternal God for the sake of undying souls with eternity in view. He says, if you're a Christian, you're on your way to heaven. You've been called out of darkness into God's light. You've left behind your sins that you may serve him in righteousness. You've turned your back upon idols to serve the living and true God and you're waiting for his son from heaven. This great privilege, this great dignity, this great favour has been bestowed upon you, Christian, that you should be called a son of God. You've been called to him. You've been called to walk before him. You've been called to live under his care. 
You've been called into union with Jesus Christ. You've been called so that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You've been called so that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, increasingly like your Saviour until that day when at his return your body is transformed, your soul made pure, and you will dwell forever with the Lord. You have a high calling. And the task, says Paul, that I have, that Silas has, that Timothy has, and that other ministers walking in our footsteps has, is that each saint and every saint should walk worthy of that call. You see now the breadth of the gospel. It's not just come to Christ, everything's fine, and now you can do what you please. No, come to Christ that you may live from now on to the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul is saying then that it was my concern and desire that every sin would be rooted out, that every virtue would be stirred up, that all confusion would be exposed and excluded, and that all truth would be brought to bear, that you would grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. That when the time comes, our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing would be you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Paul is saying that to be a Christian is no small thing. You can't just slap a name tag on somebody and say, right, you're one of God's people. It is a transforming renewing, delivering experience, brought out from under the power of sin and delivered to a life of righteousness. And Paul is saying that you then should conduct yourselves in accordance with your status and that as a minister of this great, glorious gospel, I would pursue that and out of the fear of man, I would never back away from dealing with anything that called into question the glory of God in the lives of his saints. Are we walking worthy of the God who has called us into his own kingdom and glory? Is the way that you live, the way that you speak, the things that you do, the books that you read, the people that you're with, the words that come out of your lips from your heart, the programs that you watch, the websites that you visit, reflective of the fact that you are no longer dead in your sins, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Part of my responsibility before God is to ensure by the teaching of the word, by the power of the gospel, plainly, clearly, sincerely brought to bear, that everything that does not belong in the life of a true child of God is addressed. And that everything that characterizes someone with such a high calling is brought into being.
This is what is at stake. It's the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Why does the world sneer at Christianity? Short answer is most of it isn't Christianity. It's got the label. We wave our Bibles around. We talk Jesus talk. But my friends, the power of the gospel is seen in the purity of the lives of those who are called to live with heaven in view. And the name of Jesus is trampled upon where that is not the case. And the honour of God is dismissed where that is not the case. What then should a minister of the gospel seek? He has to kill his reputation. He can't be in it for the perks. If he thinks he's going to get fame and fortune, he's a fool. Even if he wants the kind of celebrity status that cripples the modern church in some of its better known ministers. What a pathetic thing to seek. If he likes the sound of his own voice. If he enjoys being a big fish in a small pond. If he likes the applause. If he appreciates the esteem. If he wants people to think he's clever. Paul says, I followed a different pattern. Can I ask you, who does this sound like? After we had suffered before and were spitefully treated, we remained bold in our God. No error, no uncleanness, no deceit, approved and entrusted, pleasing not men but God, no flattery, no cloak of covetousness, no glory from men, no demands in accordance with who we truly were, but labouring and toiling, giving and sacrificing, in order that you might come to the Saviour and walk with the Saviour. Paul is a Christ-like man. Silas is a Christ-like man. Timothy is a Christ-like man. And what you really have here, expanded and developed, is Paul saying, in effect, we followed him. We were like him in some small measure. Not we could save you. Not we were laying down our lives to make atonement for your sins. That is something that Christ alone does for us as his people. But we had learned of him who is meek and lowly in heart. And like him, we laid aside all that which was ours by right in order that we might serve for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Paul serves a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the model that shines through this. A man then who is faithful in all things. A man who shows integrity and sincerity and humility and purity. Who resists every pressure that would drive him away from the clear, simple, straightforward bringing to bear of the gospel on every part of the lives of every man, woman, boy and girl. 
and who pursued the kind of purity that pleases God and is a means of blessing men. Paul says, that looks a lot like a godly mother and it looks a lot like a godly father. We'll consider those two metaphors, the, the pastoral tenderness of the, the motherly heart and the, the pastoral training of the fatherly disposition. But it builds on character. My friends, gift and show count for relatively little in the kingdom of God. What we need, what we need to pray for, for ourselves and for others, is that God in his mercy would give us Christ-like men who are ready, like our Saviour, to lay down their lives for the good 